Hello, my fellow ocean lovers. I am Ellen Spooner, a marine biologist and science storyteller. And this is the Ocean Optimism Podcast, a show where we hear the untold and not often shared stories of ocean conservation successes and solutions. Time and again, we see the greatest challenges lead to the greatest opportunities. So dive in with me as I interview scientists, activists, and leaders to explore the incredible feats already underway to take care of our ocean. Hello, all of my ocean lovers. I am so excited because today on the Ocean Optimism Podcast, we get to hear from Dr. David Schiffman and hear why sharks matter the title of his new book that just came out. We also get to talk about solutions to the declining shark populations all around the world and hear a really cool story about how he convinced Florida to change their recreational fishing laws to protect endangered hammerhead sharks. So you are a shark biologist, a leader in science communication, Um, you've been interviewed and had your work done on national geographic, nature, NPR, all of these really great outlets and just released. Keeping busy. Yes. I can (laughs) tell it's awesome. Um, and just released, uh, published a book called why sharks matter. Congratulations. Thank you. And so I'm curious, uh, what got you interested in shark conservation I read uh, parts of your book and I noticed that you, similar to me, are from a landlocked state. And I actually know a lot of marine biologists who come from the Midwest. um, And I now teach at Arizona State, uh, which is hardly uh, hardly coastal. So I've, I've been interested in sharks as long as my family can remember. There are pictures of me when I was a little kid with shark toys and shark t shirts. But I, the transition to the conservation angle came during college when I learned that not only are sharks awesome, which I still fervently believe that they are, but that they're ecologically important and that many species are in trouble. Yeah. Okay. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about why they're important and then why they're in trouble? Absolutely. Well, predators are always important in terms of keeping the food web in balance. They eat prey and keep prey populations in check. They also eat the sick and the weak and the dying. Uh, when you hear about survival of the fittest, predators are an important reason why the, why the not fit don't survive. So they basically keep the whole food web in balance. And when you lose predators, it can have destabilizing effects throughout the entire food web. And when we're talking about the ocean, This is a food web that provides food for billions of humans and Mm -hmm. provides employment for tens of millions of humans. We very much want the oceans to be healthy and having, having sharks uh, plays an important role in that healthy shark populations of our coasts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Having the predator populations be healthy so that they can keep their prey populations in check makes a lot of sense. Could you help, our listeners make a little bit more of the connection of how the shark populations keeping their prey populations in check helps humans with like our seafood need and how reliant we are with fish in the ocean. Yes. So the classic example of what's called a trophic cascade, which is basically a ripple ripple effect through a food web, 
comes from the, the West Coast of the United States. Hmm. And the, the classic model of this is uh, you've seen those sea otters and their adorable, the adorable photos of them lying on their back and cracking open sea urchins on their tummy with a rock. Uh, so they eat sea urchins and they keep sea urchin populations in check. And they, and they live in these beautiful kelp forests, which provide incredibly biodiverse, incredibly beautiful, fascinating habitat for dozens of species of animals. It turns out when you lose the otters, it makes the sea urchin populations grow out of control and they eat the kelp forests. Mm. Um, they graze along the bottom and bite where the, the kelp attaches to the rock and that destroys the entire kelp forest and suddenly there's no habitat for anything anymore. Mm. Even though the otters don't interact directly with the kelp other than to hold on to it so they, they don't drift away when they fall asleep, the loss of otters can completely devastate the um, the kelp forest food web because of these predator prey interactions. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, you can really see how one piece of the ecosystem impacts the rest of it. Yeah. I, re I remember learning about that when I was in school as well. Um, those interactions are really hard to predict, but they're often really unexpected and often quite bad. So we want to limit how much unraveling of the food web happens. I see. Okay. Okay, so now we're on board. We like sharks. We want to keep them in the ecosystem. What is the issue? What's going on with sharks? The issue is overfishing. And because of overfishing, because of unsustainable fishing practices around the world, <clears throat> one third of all known species of sharks and their relatives are considered threatened with extinction by the IUCN Red List. That's a lot. And it's more than there was the last time they did a roundup in 2014. It used to be about a quarter. So things are, for some species, are getting worse. Um, I, I am optimistic about the future of sharks. I know this is the Ocean Optimism yeah. podcast, oh, sure. but I want to set the stage here that there, there are very real challenges facing these fascinating and important animals. Okay. Um, I forgot to ask you earlier, though. So mm -hmm. I am an avid surfer, mm -hmm. and I so I'm in the ocean often. Um, but I know the sharks are there too. And so, you know, it's, it's often people talk to surfers like, oh, aren't you afraid of all of the sharks? And so I know that they're valuable and important for the ecosystem, but as a surfer, what can we do to just be better aware of sharks and maybe how we should interact with them, you know? Yeah. Well, sharks do occasionally bite people. Uh, every once in a while that leads to a serious injury or even a death. And that's always a tragedy, but that's really, really, really rare. Mm. In a typical year, hundreds of millions of humans go into the ocean and 50 to 70, not 50 to 70 million, not 50 to 70,000, 50 to 70 are bitten by sharks, mm. many of which don't uh, even require stitches, just a Band-Aid or something. Mm -hmm. So it's just an astronomically rare event. More people are killed by vending machines in a typical year than are killed by sharks. Mm. So it's, it's just not something you need to worry about typically. Those surfers are one of the more relatively at-risk groups. It's still very, very, very rare. And that's because that the advice we give people if you want to minimize your risk further is stay close to shore around other people, not during dusk or dawn. And as a surfer, you go far from other people uh, by yourself before or after work. So 
that's uh, certainly increasing your risk, but it's still very, very, very small. It's, it's, it's just not something you generally need to worry about. Okay. Yeah. What's something that's making me feel a little bit more comfortable is, um, I follow a, a gentleman on Instagram, Scott Fairchild, who takes really cool drone foot. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. The videos are insane. And the sharks are by surfers all the time and usually don't bother them. Exactly. If you've been in the ocean, there was probably a shark near you and it knew you were there. Exactly. That's what gave me comfort as a surfer is like, they're there, but most of the time they don't care about you. Like they just mm-hmm. want to get away from you. So that made me feel more comfortable for yeah, sure. We're, we're not on the menu when sharks bite us. They usually immediately go, Ugh, what was that? And swim away. So all this advice about what to do if you're being bitten by a shark is silly. Most people who report being bitten, they don't even see the shark that bites them because it immediately realizes we're not food and swims away. That can yeah. still hurt. That can still, if they bite in the wrong place, that can still be a very serious injury, mm-hmm. but they're, we are, they're not trying to eat us the way they are prey. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah. So as you had mentioned earlier, since this is the ocean optimism podcast, I wanted to talk about solutions in your book. One of my favorite quotes from your book on page 97, you're like, now I have some positive news. The problem of declining shark populations while daunting in scale and potentially devastating is solvable. So what are some of the solutions? There are lots of different policy solutions that are available to help protect sharks, depending on where you are, and what the specific problem is, and uh, what industries are involved, and what scale of government is involved. And that's a big part of the reason why I wanted to write this book, because the the other shark books that are out there are either very, very, very technical and written for people with PhDs or, or in law school or things like that, or they're so general and basic as to be functionally useless mm. when someone wants to, wants to actually learn what they can do to help. Mm-hmm. And it leads to a lot of people believing that the solutions are overly simplistic or to the point of even being inaccurate. So I work at the intersection of science and conservation policy, as well as years of, of public science engagement experience. So I wanted to write a book that explained thoroughly and in detail, but at an approachable level for someone without a PhD, all the different things that are out there. There are a lot of different tools that can be used to help the ocean. And a lot of them, we know they work and we know when they work and we know what can, under what conditions they work and we know what help they need in order to work. Yeah. So. As a, as a science communicator, I really appreciated the level at which your book was written. It was super easy to understand. And I think there's a lot of pieces in there um, that can be easily digestible by anybody. Um, but I wanted to maybe dive into a particular example of mm-hmm. where you have seen policy work that has been successful. So I don't know if there's one that comes to mind that you want to share. Sure. The one that I was involved in that I tell the story of in the, in the book with getting Florida to change their laws with respect to recreational fishing for endangered great hammerhead sharks. And this was an interesting case study Because when I started working on this, I had a lot of very senior people in my field tell me, why are you even looking at recreational fishing? Everyone knows commercial scale fishing is the problem. Mm. These people people with rod and reel on the beach, they may be killing a few sharks, but don't even worry about it. It's so small. Mm. I thought maybe it's a big enough deal that one grad student can spend one year taking a look. Mm -hmm. 
And sure enough, we did find that it's a much bigger problem than most people thought. Mm. And we're able to, and this kicked off a years long campaign that ended in an all Republican, then, then uh, Governor Rick Scott appointed set of fish and wildlife conservation commissioners unanimously agreeing to change the, change the rules governing hammerhead shark fishing in a way that will save hundreds, if not thousands of individuals of this endangered species every year from being killed for no reason, just so someone could take a picture with it. They don't eat them. They just want a picture with the big fish that they caught. Oh my gosh. Wait, that's this really big game incredible. Hunting. Yeah. That, like hundreds, saving hundreds of thousands of shark species. Hun- by... Sorry, hundreds or thousands. Not hundreds ah, okay. Thousands. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hundreds or thousands. That's, we want to be accurate. Um, <laughs> but that's, I'm proud I mean, of that's... what I did, but it wasn't that scale. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's still incredible though. I'm curious, like, so how did you go about like, collecting this data and what were the exact policy changes that you made? And yeah, I just want to hear more about it. Absolutely. So the deal with hammerheads is anglers love them because of their fight. Mm. They just put all their energy into trying to get off the hook. And that just kicks your butt as an angler. And that's apparently desirable. I (laughs) I enjoy, I enjoy going fishing with friends, but I don't, I very rarely catch anything. And it's just nice to have a day out on the water in nature. But this yeah. is a different attitude. These are big game hunters, basically. Mm. And the when hammerheads do that crazy fight, mm-hmm. it puts all their energy into it and they die. Oh. Um, work done by a uh, stress physiology work done by a former lab mate of mine, Dr. Austin Gallagher, found that after about 40 minutes or so of fight time, that shark's going to die. And oh, wow. you, then you talk to these anglers and they say, yeah, we've heard that hammerheads are really fragile. So we try to limit the fight time. And I think, oh, great. That's good news. And then they say, yeah, we try to make sure it's under two hours. Like, no, you're so Two close. hours. Wow. And we're doing research on these animals. I have seen uh, uh, interns that are five foot two and a hundred pounds soaking wet, reel one in in five minutes. And okay. it's just using different gear. We're using gear to maximize survival of the animal, whereas they're using gear to maximize fun. I see. So the hammerheads need to be released quickly when caught. Mm. Uh, And communicating this to the angling community, to lawmakers, to the media, to concerned stakeholders was a years-long endeavor that involved lots of different people. I wrote this up as a case study in the scientific journal Conservation Science and Practice, Mm. Um, I also spoke to media throughout the state of Florida, and that was when I was first interviewed in National Geographic and Nature. Wow. I got signed professional scientific societies involved. I got Florida Senator Marco Rubio's office involved. Wow. Uh, and just convincing people the current rules are inadequate. We do not need to ban all fishing. Fishing is important culturally and economically for the state of Florida. Yeah. But this specific practice is bad and we shouldn't do it anymore and there's no reason for it and we got the rules changed that is just so incredible because it just really shows to me at least like the impact that like one individual can have you know when you really work to make your voice heard so was the policy before like you could like fish for hammerhead and it didn't matter how long it took to reel them in. And then yeah, there were no restrictions on that. The, the deal was 
the, the, the problem was loopholes in the existing rules. So they were already on the prohibited species list by the time I came onto the scene. And that mm. meant you were not supposed to land them. You were not supposed to kill them and bring it, uh, bring it home for whatever reason. But recreational anglers were still killing them just slowly. And then they would say, it's okay, I released it. And then two hours later, a dead hammerhead washes up on the beach. And they say, oh, that's not me. That's some other hammerhead. I released it. It was fine. I see. Uh, So now the rules are you have to cut the line as quickly as possible, as close to the hook as possible. And it's not great for a shark to have a hook still on its mouth and be dragging a bunch of fishing line. But if you fight it for two hours to wrestle it onto the beach and get sand in its gills to get that hook out, it's going to die. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, And I think I remember reading that Um, when you were proposing this policy change, it was like approved by stakeholders, like by fishermen themselves. And so how did you do that? Like, were they just on board for it or? There were different communities of fishermen in Florida and the, the mainstream recreational anglers, the just regular people, they were as upset as I was by the wastefulness of the big game hunter mentality of killing these beautiful and rare and endangered and important animals for basically to get a selfie with an amazing catch. Mm. So by framing the, the rules and framing the outreach campaign as we are not anti-fishing, we're anti this crazy kind of fishing. Mm. We were able to get not only anglers, but angler lobbying organizations that normally oppose any sort of conservation regulations on board. Wow. That's huge, especially in Florida, like you said, because fishing, I mean, I have one of my best friends lives in Florida and fishing is a huge part of her life. So I know it's a huge part of the culture there. Um, So that's super incredible. Um, And it sounds like a lot of that work came from you reaching out to like the local government, federal government, conservation groups, and just talking about the research that you did, right? Yes, uh, so an important thing here is that the science, to borrow a, to borrow a phrase from Jane Lubchenco, mm. was necessary but not sufficient here. It mm. was vital for me to demonstrate, yes, this really is a problem. Yes, this really is bad. Yes, we really need to do something about it. But just publishing a scientific paper in a journal that no one reads um, doesn't move the needle. It doesn't cause anglers to change their practices. It doesn't cause governments to change the rules. So that was step one, Mm -hmm. whereas most academics would call that the end. Mm -hmm. Um, So then the next step was developing a detailed communications and advocacy strategy and working with the local environmental community and some national level colleagues, reaching out to journalists, giving public talks throughout the state of Florida about this issue. Um, And then eventually uh, getting getting the government to agree to change the rules. That's, that is really incredible. Um, and so we meant, you mentioned that that is now saving hundreds or thousands of sharks. And so have you seen, have you gone back and looked at like data now to see if that actually, like, see if that's true and like how the shark population is doing since the change of that policy? I'm still working on some hammerhead shark research in South Florida, and a team that I'm a part of discovered a uh, critical habitat of nursery area for great hammerhead sharks right within sight of downtown Miami. Wow. So people think of 
the th people think of nature as being you know isolated and pristine and whatever and this i could swim to south beach from where this site is and i'm i'm not a champion athlete or anything <laughs> uh, it's it's just right in the heart of things so nature is nature is surviving even with everything else happening we're now working to protect that area but yeah the hammerhead i just uh, just last week saw two large grade hammerheads that was awesome that is so awesome what an incredible story um and so did that get you into more of the science communication world? Like with over 65,000 followers on Twitter, you know, you're, you clearly are a leader in that field of like shark science communication. So I'm really curious, like what got you interested in that and how did you grow, you know? Yeah, I, I would say that that convinced me of the value of having this audience more than it got me into it. Cause I was already doing this before this whole thing happened. Uh, mm. But this was the first time I'd ever done sort of a strategic multifaceted communications plan using social media. Mm. And in shark world, there's art, there's an ocean conservation world. There's already been this recognition that we need to break out of the ivory tower and talk to the public about these issues. So I'm mm -hmm. standing on the shoulders of giants here in some respects, uh, but no one had really done it on social media to the same extent before me. So that the goal of don't just publish your papers in journals that no one reads, but talk to people, that was well-trodden ground before I came along. Mm -hmm. But social media was a new pathway, a new information pathway, a new set of tools that hadn't really been used much before I started doing it during my master's. Yeah, I also kind of had a similar realization where, you know, I, as a scientist was like, oh, kind of felt like, I'm like better than social media. It's for silly things. Um, and there's plenty of that for sure. <laughs> exactly. There is. But, but then I was talking with one of my girlfriends and we were like, this is a really powerful tool that the science community could use to get their message out there. And so mm -hmm. I just uh, really admire the work that you've done with, well, thank with you. it. That's nice to hear. <laughs> um, Okay. So uh, some of the last questions that I wanted to ask you is, you know, we heard this really great story about how you've moved the needle with uh, hammerhead conservation in South Florida. What are other reasons that keep you optimistic about the future of sharks across the globe? Yeah. So the, the short answer here is that more people care about this than ever before, which mm -hmm. is amazing. Mm -hmm. When Jaws came out, the global public consciousness was sharks are evil and bad and we need to kill them all. The only good shark is a dead shark. Mm. And, we, and that doesn't really happen as much anymore. It does still happen in a few places, but for the most part, it's not really a thing anymore. In fact, one of the um, quotes from a, a, a charter captain that I interviewed in Florida during my PhD, mm -hmm. uh, and this was a guy in rural Florida in an extremely red county. He mm -hmm. said, the Jaws craze is over and there's a greater public consciousness towards conservation. I'm not going to kill the sharks anymore. Uh, what's the point? I value them too much and their role in the ecosystem. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. Uh, That's like, okay, so, this is great. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That's yeah. awesome. So people care and people want to help and that's great. But an issue is that a lot of people don't really know how to help. More people want to help mm -hmm. than know what to do to usefully help. So that's a big part of why I wanted to write the book. As in all my public science engagement, I talk about some of these issues and then someone says, I would like to learn more about this. Uh, 
but I don't want to read something crazy technical. Is there anything out there that you can recommend that's you know, true and thorough and reliable, but not written for someone with a PhD? And until this week, the answer has been no, not really, sorry. So I, I wrote the book that I always wished had existed when I was giving these public talks, because there's always someone who asks a question like that. Well, that is a perfect segue because that was the very next question I'm going to ask is what can an everyday person do to help take care of sharks in our ocean? The single greatest threat that sharks are facing is unsustainable overfishing. So the single most impactful thing that someone can do to help sharks and, and the ocean in general is don't eat unsustainable seafood. Mm. I'm not saying don't eat seafood at all, mm -hmm. but some seafood is caught in such a way that it's ecologically quite disruptive. Mm -hmm. uh, don't don't do that. Uh, I love seafood. I eat seafood all the time, but I make sure that it's sustainably sourced, caught in a way that it doesn't hurt the target population or or damage the ecosystem or have damaging bycatch. And you can do that too. And that's a huge thing that people can do to help. You can also donate time or money to reputable nonprofits, or as we were mentioning just a moment ago, social media is a great way for spreading the message. So follow reliable experts and share their message with your networks. Um, don't follow people who don't know what they're talking about and don't share their nonsense. There's plenty mm. of that too. But if anyone wants to learn specific ways they can help that are more time sensitive, I share those on my social media whenever they come up, mm. uh, which is a few times a year typically. Uh, and it's at Why Sharks Matter on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you follow me there, I'm always sharing ways that people can help and always happy to answer any questions that anyone has. Yeah. Okay. So how, what are good signifiers that people can look for when they're trying to eat more sustainable seafood? Yeah. So the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch in the United States is a good guide for U.S.-based seafood. I work part-time for the Marine Stewardship Council uh, and we have, we're that blue fish check mark. I can show you here. Uh, I have my name tag there. Oh, that cool. Logo. Uh, if you see that, on, that's more at the grocery store level than at the, the seafood restaurant level. But if you see that, you can trust that it's, it's rigorously evaluated and caught um, in a sustainable way. And if you're just not sure, you can ask your server or ask the person at the seafood counter. And if they're not sure, maybe have the chicken. <laughs> okay, that sounds awesome. Um, so, yeah, that... Uh, gets to my last question of where can people learn more about your work? You said your Instagram handle is at why sharks matter. Yes. Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at why sharks matter, which is also the title of the book. I actually had the title of the book before I had all my social media handles and I've been on Twitter since 2009. So I've been writing this book for a really long time. Oh my god! It's so exciting to have it finally out and people reading it and at least telling me to my face that they like it. So it's been an exciting week. Well, congratulations. I am so excited for you. And I'm so thankful to have you on the Ocean Optimism Podcast. I know I learned a lot and will definitely make sure to be more aware of the seafood that I eat and follow what the experts are suggesting um, in terms of shark conservation. So thank you so much. Great. Thanks for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Dr. David Schiffman for coming on the Ocean Optimism Podcast. Be sure to follow him at Why Sharks Matter on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And be sure to tune in to the next Ocean Optimism Podcast, which will be released on Monday, July 25th. Follow us on any of your social media channels 
Thanks so much. Bye.